Sego, and welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane. I am one of the hosts. Uh, my other host is Regan DeLogan, who hopefully Regan will be joining us uh, directly. Um, look, before I get into talking, and I, I am going to talk about COP26 and um, kind of the bust that it was, really. Um, but I, before I do that, let me again remind folks that we are listener-supported radio, and we really do depend on your contributions to the station. And as individual producers, we count on your contributions to, to kind of validate our, validate our existence on the station. So I'm asking you, as host of Resistance Radio, to uh, go, to your, go to your stations, go to your uh, pledge lines, uh, whether you're listening in Washington, D.C., on WPFW, there you can go to 202-588-9739 or go online to WPFWFM.org. Or if you're listening in New York City on WBAI, then go to your call, your, your call, our call center, uh, 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org and follow the prompts and uh, make a donation. Do it in the name of the station and um, or in the name of this program. Uh, it all goes to the station. It doesn't go to us. But if you do it in the name of this program, I would greatly appreciate it. it uh, like I said, it does help validate um, our spot on the, uh, on the, on, you know, in the, in the uh, schedule grid. And, um, and, and frankly, I hope some of you listen to this program and do really appreciate that you're getting something you're not going to get anywhere else. And, and, and that's really what we try to deliver here. So, uh, Reggie, have you uh, any check-in from, from Regan yet? Not yet, but I will keep you posted. Uh, I'm sure you will. All right. Okay. So, uh, COP26, the you know, again, the ever increasing doomsday of climate change uh, brings all the nations together, all the politicians together, I should say, not the nations, the politicians, and once again, a, a rousing disappointment. And and of course, you got the United States trying to take center stage here, and and that's particularly troubling, you know, because even as the United States, whether it's the statements that are given at this event or just what is all the buzz, whether it's through the mainstream media or through various politicians, all taking their shots at China and even Russia, but, but all other nations, it's like all the other nations are, are not doing the heavy, heavy lifting. Um, and then singing the praises about how great the United States is doing. Look, I was a part of, the, uh, the 2014 People's Climate March. In fact, WBAI, we were the only station on site broadcasting live from the event. And, you know, half a million people showed up. And they all, we all, all marched from uh, up near Central Park and went, went all the way down uh, in, into the uh, middle of Manhattan. And, you know, it's funny, after the, after the half a million people went by, and go went right by CNN's building. They put a CNN reporter out on the street, and uh, basically said all the people marched by, and that you know it was a, there was a, a call for for action, you know, to save the climate and and all all this other stuff. But then went on to add her own little commentary about how great the United States is doing, how much the United States has you know transferred its um, its coal fire plants to. Burning natural gas and just just how much be- how how great the United States is doing in curbing uh, CO two emissions and of course it's a load of crap. I mean, 
and that's a little bit what I want to talk about here. I mean, it is it is so disturbing because even as the United States has has shifted towards burning uh, natural gas as opposed to you know as opposed to to, uh, to coal, they're still exporting coal. They're still extracting coal from the ground. So they send this coal to other countries that burn it, and then they say, "Look at those countries all burning coal." I mean, are you freaking kidding me? And and here's the th- the part that gets me, you know, almost the most. But it, it's it is really it is really the premier issue. The premier issue is consumption. And that's what the United States and, and its capitalism is all about. Terrorists, uh, you know, topple the, the World Trade Center. What do you do? You go out and you shop. Yeah, that, that's the way you, you don't let the terrorists win. You go out and you shop. It doesn't matter. Just keep buying stuff. You know, uh, how do you get out of a recession caused by COVID-19? Go out and shop. Now you've got literally ships backed up at every, uh, um, every port. Because the United States is buying stuff like crazy. And when, I, when I say United States, Americans are buying stuff like crazy. And here's the thing. If you're going to poke at China and say, look at how much, look at, look at the emissions that's coming out of China. And yet you're going to buy so much of your goods from China. And, and, that's, and I'm not like picking on people just ordering from Amazon. I just mean in general. Because I don't want this to sound like I'm, I'm picking on the individual consumer. I'm picking on U.S. consumption. Because if, you, if, if people are buying and consuming goods from places like China, India, and some of these other you know, countries that are, that are really struggling to, to meet, you know, they're, they're trying to build their economies too, just like the United States is always trying to do. And, and then you're going to condemn their CO2 emissions when you, your purchases and, and your demand for products and your demand to have them make the products that you've designed and that kind of stuff and then sell to, to Americans. Because, look, this is more about the American, uh, the multinational corporations that are making the billions of dollars than, you know, than the 10 or 20 bucks an American citizen is saving by, by ordering something that's coming from China as opposed to anyplace else. And, and, look, and I'm not trying to do this whole proudly made in America stuff, but there is something to be said for buying local. And when you consider that so much of the energy consumption, one thing, the United States still consumes more energy uh, uh, products or, or, or you know, fuel or whatever than, than the next five countries. I mean, that's what the United States consumes. I mean, they, they, the amount, they, they consume like 20% of the world's uh, energy resources. And as other countries are trying to figure out where they fit in in trying to ramp up their economies, especially to, to satisfy the insatiable appetite for consumables that the United States has through its, you know, again, through its market system. It, isn't, it, it just isn't fair for the United States to say, look at how good we're doing and look at what we're doing. We're, we're shifting to, to uh, solar, more solar energy and more wind energy, and we're going to have more electric cars and that kind of stuff. But they're still going to be buying stuff from these other countries that really is – that's, that's where the emissions are coming from. The emissions are coming from, from the manufacturing sector in some of, these, in some of these, these countries. So I find it really, really troubling to, to listen to, the, you know, to Americans try to point the finger. And then, and then to listen to you – know, especially to right-wing politicians say, well, we're not going to curb our uh, – and uh, emissions unless China does it or unless this country does it, India or Russia. 
You know, we're, we're not going to hurt our economy and drive more, you know, drive their economy by giving them an unfair advantage. I mean, it, it, is, it, it is just so much crap. I mean, and of course, I say this as our people are fighting the ever-increasing amount of pipelines that are, that are not only going through and around our, our, our territories, but harming our waterways and destroying the environmental, having direct environmental impact on, on us as, as indigenous people, and of course, other people as well. But we are the first line, not only of defense, but we're also the, the first to be adversely impacted by, by this. I mean, you look at indigenous people throughout the globe, in the in the low lying areas and some of the the isles of uh, the South Pacific and you know or or around the Gulf of Mexico, it's I mean it's it's impoverished people. Look among the first climate change refugees in the United States were Native people living uh, you know living in the Gulf of Mexico who had their 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 coastal lives um, totally inundated uh, and if not totally inundated and, and flooded. But certainly changed um, the the ecology of the area because it, salt water seemed to have has overtaken all of the uh, the land that has not been you know submerged. But this is what this is what we have, and then we've got and, and it's not even just in the United States. It's it's the role the United States plays even in, in assisting Canada in extracting the dirtiest oil on the planet in terms of tar sands oil, and then providing the infrastructure to get that to market. Because for all the talk, and again, I have to remind people sometimes that the Keystone XL pipeline was not about domestic oil supply. It was about the tar sands oil, the dirtiest oil on the planet, being extracted in various ways, uh, tremendously high carbon footprint, coming from Canada, crossing the U.S. border, going down to uh, oil refineries that are grandfathered in to continue to pollute so that oil could be sent to uh, to places like China and where China can burn it because they've got to burn that oil, that burn that oil to uh, produce goods for Americans. I mean, it's the, no matter how you you slice this thing and how you how much you chase this thing down, it still comes down to the United States having a role globally in climate change, not just how much coal the United States is burning, but how much does the United States support the existing economy that is fossil fuel dependent? And, and, and that's, that's the, you know, the bottom line. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what you have to consider. And there's no country that has a bigger impact on the burning of fossil fuels than the United States does. And, 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 and there's no getting around this. So, Look, what I will say about about COP26 is that at least most of the noise that came out, and I'm not talking about the, the grand, beautiful, beautiful speeches that, you know, that the, the prominent polluters were giving, but those who are the most um, vulnerable to climate change and, of course, the activists all said, look, this is, this is an utter failure. I mean, not only are the rich, rich countries who have done most of the damage still not ponying up to, to provide the the millions or billions of dollars that they pledged to help some of the most vulnerable uh, countries uh, and, and peoples uh, on the planet. They haven't done that. But they, 
you find them looking over their shoulders and no, I'm not going to do it if such and such isn't going to do it. I'm not going to, you know, make make this commitment. And then even when they do make the commitment, I mean, it's just words. It's just lip service. So I'm really troubled because if you, if you listen to, you know, to Joe Biden or, you know, or, or anybody else, I mean, and look, it doesn't matter if you listen to the right or the left on this for the most part. You are not getting the commitment out of the United States, U.S. corporations. And look, one of the things, and I, and I want to be clear here, when I talk about consumption, I'm not talking about, you know, somebody who's ordering their stuff online for Christmas. Not necessarily. I mean, that's obviously part of the problem. <laughs> but the idea that the people are encouraged at every level, from every form of media, I mean, I don't care if it's social media, inundated with advertisements on what to buy next. The United States, the whole solution to every problem, you know, political, economic, whatever, the solution to every problem is go out and buy more. And in fact, we're going to give you money so you go out and buy more. I mean, but so my, my, the point that I really want to be clear, that I'm not trying to condemn the individual purchaser. Is there a certain responsibility there? Yeah. But I recall when I was a kid growing up, there was the crying Indian. One of the one, most people consider the, the, the most successful PSA ever produced. Of course, he wasn't native. He, he was a white guy playing, you know, putting on a wig and, and, and playing a native person with a tear coming down his eye as, uh, as uh, trash is being thrown on his feet. And the message there was that only you, can, can prevent this kind of litter. Only you could prevent, prevent. So no, no commitment. There was nothing in that messaging. And there was, there was a series of these commercials. It's not just one. There was nothing in the messaging that suggested there was any corporate responsibility or any messaging uh, responsibility to the messaging that the United States continues to pump out there in terms of you know, promoting consumerism. They just said, no, if you, if you just throw your, your, your McDonald's um, garbage in, in, the, in the trash can, then we can, we can stop pollution. Really? Really? So we're going to shift the entire you know, ecological messaging of the 70s, which was don't pollute, and we're going to say, we mean you, the consumer. We're not talking about the corporations. No, we're still going to be dumping stuff in the ground. We're still going to, we're going to use toxins to get more oil out of the ground with hydrofracking. We're going to continue to, to dump and pay fines for dumping because it's cheaper than, than, than dealing with, uh, with toxic waste the way they should be dealt with. One of the, the most polluted lake in the United States was, or is Onondaga Lake. Right there by, by Syracuse. By some estimates, it's like 13 feet of mercury at the, at the bottom of that, uh, of that lake. I mean, it, it's pretty incredible. It's, a, it's incredible that a lake could be, and it's right there, right next to where they, they have the New York State Fair. And, you know, as you fly over, it, oh, it looks great. Yeah. And so why is it so polluted? Well, you had what they called Oil City on one side, but they, they kind of cleaned it up and they put a mall there. <laughs> but you had you, chemical company. You, you had, um, um, a number of chemical companies, Allied, Chem Allied Steel, Crucible Steel, and Allied Chemical, I think, they were both dumping toxic waste and uh, just piping it right into the lake for, for years. And, and they'd even pay the fines for it. It was cheaper to pay the fines to the extent that they were fined. I mean, let, let's be honest here. They, they were, 
You can't be a job killer. Let's not kill jobs. We got to, you know, well, well, we lose a lake, but, uh, well, it's still there. Just, just don't swim in it and certainly don't try to catch a fish in it. You know, and then, then they want to they, they wanted to praise how wildlife was living along Onondaga Lake. And there was owls and there were eagles and everybody's saying, you know, oh, isn't that great? The eagles have returned. And this is the lake that they, re they returned to? This is what you did to what, would it, what was a, uh, an eagle nesting ground? I mean, I mean, it is so sad and so pathetic on so many different levels that it's hard for me to address it. But, but again, <laughs> as, I, as I talk about this stuff, it, it's important that people realize that, that it's industry that is the biggest culprit of, of every, um, no matter how you look at it, whether you're talking about air pollution, water pollution, you know, what, whatever it is, you know, the, the CO2 emissions. And, and look, yeah, are individuals driving the cars that are, that are you know, putting CO2 into the, into the atmosphere? Sure, but, but who do you think's making the cars? And what's the carbon footprint associated with those things? Like I said, I, I have to remind people the role that the United States plays in other countries producing excessive amounts of CO2 emissions. And, you know, and look, <laughs> one of the things that, that I've talked about on this, on this program and, and on my podcast, and I want to remind people to, to do, do check out my, my podcast, which is Let's Talk Native with John Kane. Let's Talk Native. If you search Let's Talk Native with John Kane, I'm on all the podcast platforms, as is this show. So if you look for Resistance Radio with John and Regan, you'll also find this show on a, on a podcast. So you can just, you know, just search any podcast platform. If you ask Alexa to play the Let's Talk Native with John Kane podcast, it'll, it'll come right up. One of, the, one of the platforms will come up. But it, it, is, it is so important that, that we, we look at the, the, the full responsibility that the United States should, ha should have on, on some of this stuff. I mean, we, we see the dodging of the bullet all the time and, you know, pointing fingers at somebody else all the time. This is, you know, this is kind of, you know, this is, this is the, the way the United States rewrites history. They do it, they do it in real time. And, and I don't mean just the United States. I mean the media loves this stuff. Just keep rewriting history in real time, all the time. And that's, that's the way you, 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 you find new ways to condemn anything that's going to make you look bad. Like, you know, this, all the hysteria over critical race theory. All of this hysteria over teaching any history that should, in any way, shape, or form will hold the United States accountable. And, and all this does, it, it becomes the predictor. <laughs> because as climate change continues and more and more tragedy is found, I mean, look, in, out in British Columbia on the Canadian side, they have forest fires followed by, by flooding. Same, you know, same with other parts of the United States. And, you know, and so these are the countries and these are areas that are really feeling the impact of drought, you know, of uh, in, in, intense you know, weather systems that, that are doing things that are, that are essentially unheard of. The number and ferocity of, uh, uh, of, of hurricanes during the hurricane season, the, you know, tornadoes, all, all of it, all of it. But, you, you, but nobody will take responsibility for it. And the United States won't. I mean, even as they set their goals and their standards, they're going to keep buying stuff, and, and you know, maybe they're going to shift some of the burden. See, there are plenty of American companies that make lots of money off of stuff manufactured in the countries that 
have, that aren't going to uh, make those meet, make uh, these goals or meet the goals that they do make. And what's what's driving that? Well, the fact is, well, why do you think this stuff is being made in others in these other countries? Cheaper labor, more lax environmental standards. I mean, that, that's the, that's the reason, you know, or um, more when I talk about in, lax environmental standards, that comes to both producing the raw materials for goods and disposing of uh, of the trash after. The, look, for every every time you buy something, something gets thrown away. And where do you think that thrown away goes? You know, there's there are countries that you know had been receiving this stuff. I mean, if you see images of barefoot children walking through a um, a dump, looking for something that they can salvage to, to make money, and you can't see the economic disparity there. You see children scavenging through uh, through through these these toxic you know these chemical um, laden uh, dump sites, looking for something that they can they can you know whether they can you know re retrieve some copper or, or or whatever whatever it is there that they can they can turn a dime on. I mean, man, that that's just incredible. And and it's funny because when I see those things, I also see how similar some of those lifestyles are if you if you actually go to some native territories. And and of course, some are worse than others. I mean, every native territory experiences the highest levels of poverty compared to any other areas, you know, around them. But, but obviously, some somebody has to, you know, somebody takes the trophy home for having the worst economies. And look, there are territories that have um, unemployment rates that are in excess of fifty percent. You have places where the poverty levels are, are incredible. Places that don't have clean water. You know, you wonder why why do native people um, experience the uh, the COVID pandemic differently than other places did. Well, that's easy. You, you just look at the at the at the poor infrastructure that exists on our territories. You, you look at the you know the water quality. You look at um, you, the the fact that we don't we don't even have decent communication on our territories. We don't have the, the internet that exists every place else. You know and. And then every time somebody throws a bunch of money, like, you know, yeah, they're going to pass this, you know, trillion-plus-dollar infrastructure bill, the amount of grift that is going to take place as people say, oh, look at all the money that went to this state or that state or this native territory or that native territory. You know, I, I always go back, and, and, you know, even as people start talking about things like, I don't know, um, reconciliation, you know, uh, as a part of the um, the residential school issue uh, on the Canadian side, they had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. They had a little bit of truth and almost no reconciliation. Yeah, they they cut some checks and that kind of stuff. But I always come down to well, how do you value the harm that is done to somebody? And and this relates to to environmental issues as well. But from a native standpoint, I I have I always go back to the to the Cobell suit, you know, this, this suit about the misappropriation, if not theft, fraud, embezzlement, whatever you want to call it, of between 40 and 100 billion, that's with a B, billion dollars. That's, that was some of the estimate. And of course, record keeping by the Interior Department, so bad that 
the, the premier accounting firms that looked into this said, look, you're not going to pull any information out of this that's worth anything. You, you, you just got to come up with a figure and pay them because your record keeping. And this is after, of course, stuff has been shredded and burned on purpose, by, mind you. I mean, the Interior Department was held in contempt of court for failing to produce, produce records. But out of all that, the great Barack Obama, he settled that suit for pennies on the dollar. Less than $4 billion was ponied up to settle the Cabell suit, which was estimated between $40 and $100 billion worth of losses. Four, $4 billion. And much of it, if not most, but much of it, still went to white people. It went to white people, uh, you know, some people who um, had questionable land deeds and they're, they're, they got paid off for the land. So <laughs> they made they got the, you know, Fatten their wallets for years on uh, illegally obtained native lands, and then they get paid, you know, they get paid by the federal government to leave it. And, you know, so the amount of money that gets lost in the bureaucracy, and I bring this up because it, it does remind me of these tri this trillion-plus dollars that's going to go into infrastructure and how much money is going to be sw just swallowed up by greed and corruption. You know, one of the, the reasons I, I brought up, as I started referring to my, my podcast, Recently, what I've been talking about is, again, we're talking about reconciliation on, uh, on residential schools. I'm saying no reconciliation. I say restoration. And I mean restoration of lands and our autonomy. And, and I say that for a number of reasons, not the least of which is environmental. Look, don't just tell me you're going to protect spaces for us. Give us control to protect it ourselves. See, this is the issue. So not only has, ha, ha, have billions of acres of native land been fraudulently taken from native people. And, you know, of course, native people have also been pushed off of lands and, you know, and, and pushed into the cities. You know, obviously, children wrestle away from their families for 100-plus years for residential schools. Decrease our population, move us away from the land, and then gobble up the land, and then the land goes to crap. Then you can uh, look. <laughs> then you don't even have to consider native lands sacrifice any zone, uh, sacrifice zones anymore. Why? Because they're not. You're not even considering them native lands anymore. But the lands that we do retain, we still don't have the the control that we should have to protect ourselves from all of this chaos, this environmental chaos that's happening. That's why I call for restoration of of, of land and autonomy, especially if we're going to look at how does the United States and Canada, for that matter, make right on what they did for 100 years in the genocide that they, that they perpetrated, um, they called residential schools. And look, one of the things about the word genocide is because it was only became essentially a crime, a punishable Aiken crime. Is in the building. All right. Because, because genocide has only become a punishable offense coming after World War II, it's like there's a pass. Well, so all the genocide that took place before that is not punishable. Well, here's the problem. Much of the residential school stuff continued for, uh, for another several decades. So the United States and Canada did commit genocide after genocide was a thing. We're not talking about just charging them for what, uh, you, know, or, or, you know, charging them for a crime that, was, that they committed before it was considered a crime. But they continue to do this stuff. 
It's one of the reasons that they had so much trouble, um, not only with the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, but even internationally with, with language involving genocide. Because the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, they knew what they were guilty of. And they didn't want to be prosecuted for it. And they also knew they weren't going to stop anytime soon either. So if we have more control, not only of, of the lands that are recognized and distinguished as our lands, but also the proper amount of oversight on the lands around our territories and the lands impacting our peoples, that's only a good thing for everybody, except for possibly corporations. So we need the restoration of lands and autonomy as, as, to even have a conversation about residential schools. But, but when we talk about environmental issues, don't tell me you're going to turn a, a, you know, some of our sacred sites into a national monument. That's not, re that's not restoring, uh, restoring land or autonomy. That's oftentimes keeping it just as far away from us as it was when, before you turned it into a national monument. Because it's not our nation's monument you're turning it into. It's yours. Regan, I believe you are, you, you've caught up with me. I am here. I hope you can hear me okay. Yes, I can. I, well, I'm glad you, you joined me. I already Wonderful. kind of went through a little bit of the, you know, the BS associated with the United States calling out countries that are not meeting the, or setting the same goals or meeting the same goals that the United States is. Um, when yeah, it's so, it's so easy to blame, you know, other, other countries for their lack of, uh, uh, I know that one of the big things is the, the U.S. loves to blame China for emissions, um, specifically related to carbon. But I find that to be absurd, uh, especially considering that uh, at least two of the pipelines that I know of, specifically the, uh, the Brooklyn pipeline, um, is for export and specifically to export gas, uh, natural gas out of the U.S. Uh, to places like China. So uh, for the U.S. at COP26, any delegation to, to, you know, try to demonize other countries for their, you know, egregious emission standards, but then to be providing them with the resources necessary to create that kind of uh, damage is just, you know, absolutely absurd and unfounded. Well, and also not, not I, I mentioned this earlier also, is the Keystone XL pipeline. That's, that's about tar sands oil being you know, uh, pushed across the, you know, north to south to, uh, uh, to Texas. So the, the, um, the refineries that are grandfathered in that allows them to pollute can continue to pollute and produce and, and, and do some processing of this tar sands oil so, uh, so China can purchase it. I mean, it's, so yeah, and, it, and it's just, a, it's, so much, it's so much of a lie and, and such, such a misdirection here that it's, that it's unbelievable. Yeah, and the same thing is, you know, the same thing is true with the, the Brooklyn pipeline. Um, you know, for folks that are unaware, the pipeline is uh, going back underway to be built. Uh, originally, there was a halt in construction and uh, natural gas was rerouted through an old pipeline that we've known was leaking. But now the intention is to continue uh, building the originally new pipeline and we'll be going through Greenpoint, which is in, uh, you know, uh, northwest Brooklyn. Um, and uh, and it's the same thing that we saw with uh, with the pipeline that's going through uh, and be, and going out to export through Texas. The same thing is happening in Greenpoint and Brooklyn, and all this natural gas will be exported to other countries like China. So it's just like an for me, it's just so frustrating to see these world leaders and all of these nonprofits at COP26, 
you know, saying, oh, well, you know, look at all these other countries doing, you know, doing bad uh, upon us when the reality is that, you know, that the, the resources are being provided and funds are being provided to them by by the U.S. Yeah, the big push for, for the big push for hydrofracking, the, the big push for hydrofracking and, and uh, these new pipelines, you know, ultimately uh, could be. If you, if you follow it, you realize that it has as much to do with exporting rather than it's it's about not about um, energy independence and that kind of stuff. In fact, the the crazy part is, and, and you you told me about this, is how the local consumers, you know, the, the American consumers, are being held hostage for these pipelines to be built so they can export. And they say, oh, we can't we can't have any new services because uh, we don't have new pipelines. Although there's been plenty of pipelines to, to handle domestic distribution. That they get held hostage over this idea of building new pipelines, so uh, so natural gas can be exported. Yeah, I mean, this is such an important conversation, especially right now for anyone that's listening that lives in the New York area, the metropolitan New York area. Um, is that your? If you look at your bill um, and look at, if, assuming you have National Grid, which we all have National Grid because National Grid has a monopoly over natural gas in New York City. Um, but if you look at your bill you'll notice that there's a rent hike and that rent hike started back on August 12th when um, city council voted to allow that, that uh, rate hike rather um, to, uh, to be put into place. And that rate hike is to pay for the pipeline going through Brooklyn. That's well, like and, exactly and, what it's for. So, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it's so not important only are we going to, yeah, it's important that people ahead, realize sorry. that local politicians ultimately do have some say over this. And, and so this is, ends up being, not just something not it isn't just that the oil companies or the energy companies are screwing us there there are politicians elected officials that are complicit with it i also think that a lot of folks assume that national grid is a us based company it's not it's a british owned company um and it has you know again we in the same way that embridge is a canadian company that built line 3 in the us um, no North, the, the Brooklyn pipeline is um, being built by National Grid, which is, which is a British company. Uh, and so this rate hike that we are all paying for is to pay for this new pipeline to be completed, as well as to uh, refine and export the natural gas that is going through again for export to be sold to places like, you know, like China, which the US will so quickly demonize. Um, and it's, so I think it's really important to, for folks to understand that like what happens maybe what we imagine happens elsewhere in terms of like line three and line five and like, um, you know, uh, coastal gas link and these like larger pipeline fights is happening right now in Brooklyn. But a lot of us are unaware of it because local politicians are working with these corporations to keep it pretty hush hush. So um, I just want like this, I want to advocate that like this is a localized issue as well, that yeah. we see the pipeline is being built through Brooklyn, through black and brown neighborhoods. It's already leaked a number of times it will they're going to continue building it again for export you have you are paying more for it to be built and not and, and you will not see any of that natural gas none of that natural gas is for consumption of people in new york city it is all for export well and and one of the things that i uh, talked about before you joined me was um that the other part of the hypocrisy of all this is the level at which consumption is not only done by the American people, but pushed on the American people by, by corporations and by the, by, by the politics, by, by the government. I mean, look, you, you, like I said, you, you, the Trade Center gets toppled, and what's, this, what's George Bush say? Go out and shop. The terrorists won't win as long as we keep buying stuff. 
So even if you're going to point to other countries like China, how much consumerism, U.S. consumerism, is tied to China's emissions? I mean, I got to think that much of what China is, is producing is, is for export. We know because we, we, you only have to look out off the coast of uh, either West or East Coast and you see ships lined up with containers on them, all of that, that stuff coming from other countries and much of it coming from China. And so you realize that, that the, this government promoted, this mainstream media promoted consumerism. Look, and like I said, you don't, I don't care where you go. You can go on social media. You can look any magazine. You can watch, uh, you know, cable TV. Listen to the radio. All you you're inundated with more stuff to go out and buy. And of course, this is the real silly season because you know, our special month, <laughs> National <laughs> Native American Heritage Month, is oh is, my favorite <laughs> month of the year. It's the month that consumerism is you know really put in, into high gear. Buy more stuff. Buy it early, buy it often, you know, buy it, buy it, buy it. And then yeah. we're going to say that the United States is cutting its emissions even as more stuff is being produced in other countries that, are, that have emissions. Everything you buy has a carbon footprint. And where that carbon footprint is in Dearborn, Michigan, or in, uh, you know, in Thailand or, or, or Philippines or China or any place else, it's, there's only one planet. Yeah, I think that it's, you know, there are, the, the whole, the debacle of COP26 really, I think, highlights for a number of people the contradictions that exist within the, like, the macro scale of what it looks like to be in, uh, like, let's say, solidarity with environmental struggles. And the reality is that, you know, it's just a bunch of you know, lip service, it's a bunch of politicians and a lots of nonprofits taking up space, pretending like they are going to make changes when the reality is, um, they could have made changes, you know, Biden speaking at COP26 uh, and shaming other folks, but then also highlighting, you know, how committed he is to, to, the, green, to, to the Green New Deal, um, but then not stopping line three is a perfect example about how it's not real. You know, like none of this is, if there was any an intention to actualize um, or to push back on the impending climate catastrophe, we would see actions taken. We would see um, pipelines stopped by the federal government, but the reality is that like that is not the intention. But then you see small um, uh, you see small gestures made, and I, I want to talk. This is something that I wanted to talk about on this sh on the show. Um, is you see small gestures made by the administration that are meant to flag as if it is radical without doing much. And the example that I wanted to bring up was that so uh, the past two days has been the. Uh, there's been a, a uh, what are they referring to? A summit, a tribal summit in D.C. <laughs> for the past two days. Mind you, it's all virtual because um, COVID so adversely affects indigenous people. So the intention was to have it, you know, virtual. Uh, 570 tribal leaders are, are were to speak at this event. And out of this event, um, Biden uh, signed a proclamation in which no new oil or gas leasing will be allowed within 10 miles of Chaco Canyon, specifically the Chaco Cultural National Historical Park. Um, but it will only be prohibited for the next two years, the next two years, um, as federal officials decide if they could do a proposal in which it would be banned for 20 years. But as of right now, the U.S. Department of the Interior has decided that uh, prohibiting new oil and gas leasing within 10 miles of Chaco Canyon um, 
for the next two years. And of course, people are celebrating it, you know, saying this is a victory. Deb Haaland is doing what she said she was going to do. The Biden administration is taking environmental justice seriously coming out of COP26. And, and the reality is that it, this doesn't do much to change any of the realities for us in terms of what it to actually be in solidarity with indigenous people. You know, Coe Canyon is a site that has been, it's a, you know, it's an important site for Southwest indigenous folks. And it's been mined for a number of resources, eight colonists for a number of years. Propose a two-year ban is just like, honestly, so irrelevant in terms of what is being asked uh, by folks in the area, by indigenous folks in the area. And so I, I see the Biden administration coming out of COP26, this really like haphazard decision that, you know, of course, Deb Haaland supports and, uh, and, and is, and uh, I, I just, it just feels like such a performative action to change what was going on and rather to, again, to push back on climate injustice, then they would stop all pipelines and put a, a, a lifelong ban on uh, new oil and gas leasing. Also, this is new oil and gas leasing, which means that old leases buy oil from pre like previous leases to oil companies can still continue in the area. Well, and, and when you say continue, it, it doesn't mean that they can continue to take out what they've built. They, if they have the lease, they can continue to build new, uh, new extraction points. And, and one of the things that exactly. I heard, one of the things I heard also out of this is that there was no real um, input from the, the native people who were affected by it. This was just something that no. was done purely as window dressing for such a short period of time in the overall scheme of things isn't really going to make much difference, as you said. So you do this without even, even having native people at the table, other than Deb Haaland, of course. You know, so, you know, so they well, come up yeah. with these ways that they can, they can do these superficial things and then take a victory lap over it. Well, it's in the same way that the same, you know, similar to what happened with the, the pipeline in Brooklyn, in which they were like, okay, we're going to pause construction while we consider the environmental impacts. And people were like, yay, hooray. But then they just rerouted it through an older pipeline and continued to pump this gas through. Yeah, it didn't pause out hardly anything, right? <laughs> construction. Yeah, it did it. And then, and then they're going to continue building this new pipeline. So the reality is like, these aren't actual fixes. They're just band-aids on these gaping wounds. And they know that, you know, the, the Biden administration knows this. Deb Haaland knows that a two-year suspension on new oil and gas does nothing to protect Chaco Canyon, does nothing to protect the land. And again, I think that a lot of folks are not reading into some of the words that are being used, like new oil and gas leasing. That means leases that already exist can continue to build within 10 miles of Chaco Canyon. Like, it, it's, uh, I really, I'm, I feel a little... Uh, uh, defeated today because I've been reading all this stuff about COP26 and I've been reading about what's happening at Chaco and, you know, what, wasn't you know, there a new, new announcement to, about, to uh, about taking oil out of the Gulf of Mexico too? Um, the sale of more yeah, new, like, leases, what, uh, new leases in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. There's a bunch, there's a bunch of new leases that are being awarded. So even if you see the small moment in which there's a two year ban, um, while they consider a 20 year ban, um, you know, like there's still an immense amount of resource extraction happening elsewhere. And so I think that for me, witnessing the ridiculousness of COP26 and then seeing how different world leaders are handling that by doing a lot of like unnecessary and honestly like useless uh, activism is just like it's disheartening because the pipelines are still being put in the ground. The tar sands are still flowing through line three. 
Natural gas is still uh, throwing, flowing through Brooklyn pipeline. Line five is being built right now. Uh, like they're going to start putting in refineries in Texas to refine the tar sands coming from line three. Like there are, there is so much, there is so much more resource extraction happening on such a huge, uh, huge scale. And if you were committed to climate change, you would end all of that. And it's just so, so obvious that there's no intention to do that. Well, and, and to the extent that you, you, you see more windmills and, and, and large solar farms, I, I, it also concerns me that these all get done, for the most part, at utility scale. So it's the same power companies that, that, you know, that are putting some of their investments into this stuff. So they're still controlling the conversation. They're still controlling the, the power, they're, whether it's, you know, again, whether it's, um, you know, uh, sustainable, you know, energy development or not. I mean, there isn't the kind of um, emphasis that could be made where, where the consumers can play a role. I mean, we're just, we, we just pay the electric bill and, you know, and, and, and they'll, ja they'll jack the price up and say, well, green energy is more expensive, even if it's not really. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it, and yeah that, that's it, what it, I was about to say. And even, and even the electric car thing. I mean, th this is going to, I mean, it's, it's all about what economy they can make out of it. I mean, you look at how this thing has to be sold. It has to be sold as a jobs, uh, you know, as a jobs program because it, it, because you can't do something for the right reasons. If you can't make it make um, corporate sense. Money. If profit. you can't make it make corporate sense, then, then it, doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how destructive your policy is. And I, I find that to be something that really is lacking in these conversations about new green renewable energy is that they are still being created for profit. And if they're being created for profit, then there is no way that they are sustainable or green. You cannot have windmills, even if you have these, all these windmills, like thousands of acres, hundreds of acres of windmills, let's just say it's still being controlled by a corporation. People have to pay more to opt into a green renewable energy program. Most people will not choose to pay more money because most people don't have more money to pay for a green, for a greener life way, which is, you know, like in New York city, you can opt into paying more money for electricity coming from windmills, but who, who would do that? Who, who would pay more money? Well, so you cheap know, to honestly, live in New York city like, already, right? It's so cheap to live there. Exactly. <laughs> so I think that's something that people really need to like let go of in terms of seeing green renewable energy as something that is sustainable. If it is done through a corporation, then the intention is to make profit. And anything that has the intention of making profit is not green. It is not renewable. It is not sustainable. It's capitalism and colonialism. Like that's just what it is. If you actually want to live um, in a like sustainable way, we have to localize these things. You can't have you know, swaths of acres of windmills that are powering New York City um, that we are all paying more money for and think that that is somehow more uh, better for the environment, more sustainable for the environment. The reality is that like we have to break away from these monolithic companies and localize it to our own homes, to our own communities and be, and that's scary. And, and, and it's also requires a lot of skill that a lot of us, you know, a lot of this information is gate kept away from us, you know, requires us to go to trade schools and do these things um, to learn the skills in order to share them with the, with the community. But that is how it works. Large solar panel farms are not green just because they have a different sort of emission rate. Like 
That's not how it works. It, we have to break away from relying on corporations to provide us clean, renewable energy. Well, and even, even the conversation about smart grid stuff. I mean, look, if, if you are going to continue to force everybody to be on that grid, smart or otherwise, you are still centralizing and giving such a small number of people control over how you're, you know, how you're living that, that it's dangerous. I mean, I don't hear a whole lot of conversation about anybody promoting any more off grid, uh, <laughs> off grid living. That's, that's never a conversation that comes out of, you know, out of, you know, out of the government in any way, shape or form, because that doesn't meet, that doesn't satisfy their needs. No, because it's not profitable because the, we forget that politics and profit are so intertwined. It, that is why we don't, that is why we see the con continued destruction of our environments. It's because the government is still, the federal government is still more, uh, is in cahoots to making money, not in having people survive and thrive. Well, and, and let's, I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure out the role that money plays in who sits in these positions of power in the first place. I mean, of the course. amount of money that comes Come from on. major utilities and from, you know, the, the oil uh, industry and the automotive industry and so many of the things that are the, the most guilty partners in all of this uh, climate change stuff. These are the people who spend the most money on politicians. Absolutely. You know, I think that there needs to be as we see as we look as we see how politicians move and, and nonprofits move post COP26. Um, I think it's imperative that we maintain critical of what the actual changes are and that we are critical of the small things that are meant to distract us, like this two-year ban at Chaco and how it does not do anything to, um, to disrupt the industries that are so insidiously destroying our land. Yeah, it, it is... It is. Uh, it's truly disturbing. I mean, I mean, it really is. And and you mentioned the the so-called tribal summit. I mean, these things are are you know a debacle all by themselves. I mean, the fact that they they did this remotely was at least that happened because I get it, in the in the past we've seen millions of dollars spent by native territories to send their officials to Washington for basically for a photo op a picture of the president, uh, of them with the president in front of a Christmas tree or something along those lines. That's what we've seen in the past. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I can imagine how, how that could have possibly worked technically for native voices to really have been heard in this idea of a virtual event. I mean, you, you can't do that. I mean, honestly, it is, it's, it's absurd to think that you're going to bring, you know, 500 plus native representatives together to, to do what? For two days. Yeah, for two, two days. days. What do you want to accomplish for in, in two days? Yeah. yeah. I want to. I, I want to read uh, Deb Howland's tweet because it was like so. It, it frustrated me. And what she said is, over the past two days, the administration has heard from tribal leaders as they shared the hopes, dreams, and needs of their communities. What has been shared during the summit will help inform our work with Indigenous people moving forward. And I cannot thank you enough. End quote. And the pictures that are provided with this tweet are pictures of um, Deb Haaland and some other White House administration, White House administration, sitting in front of the American flag, looking at Zoom images of different tribal nations, and it looks, you know, it's very, it, it, 
it looks very professional, <laughs> which I hate. But I think that, but what I want to bring up is, first of all, tribal leaders rarely speak for their people. Um, you know, it's very rare that that actually is synonymous. And if you wanted to know what the actual hopes, dreams, and needs of communities were, you would talk to the communities that are most adversely affected and just remove the hierarchy uh, within that space in the first place. And the idea that this would help inform the work with Indigenous people moving forward, and then to have that Chaco Canyon um, uh, uh, action released is just such a, it, it just feels, it just, this feels really, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, this feels really performative and almost like a, like a, a horrible SNL skit. Yeah. Well, and, and you, make a, you make a good point. Let's remember that Native, the governance that exists for most Native people was obliterated by the United States and then recreated in their image in after 1934 in the uh, yeah. the reorganization Indian Reorganization of Act of 1934. So all of these so-called tribal governments are really, at least many of them, are they get more of their power from the federal government than they do from their own people. Yeah, and also like I think that folks don't realize that in order to be federally recognized, you have to adopt the literal organization of the settler colonial government. So it's not like these are people who, and I don't want to speak for every nation because I think that's incredibly, incredibly problematic, but I doubt that many of these tribal leaders are actually in uh, speaking for what the community actually needs. Well, and, and I find that. And to be real specific, you know, what, a, what a federally recognized tribe is, is a banned tribe or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States. That is defined by the United States. I think there are a lot of territories that are federally recognized that never uh, signed up for that definition. Exactly. Regan, I want, I want to thank you so much for joining me. Um, great conversation. I think it's important that people know this stuff, and uh, there's nobody better to bring it than you. So I, I appreciate you. I appreciate <laughs> what you do. All right. This Always is John Kane and Regan DeLoggins for Resistance Radio. Thanks for listening. Yahweh.